Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by writer and podcaster Helen O'Hara. You may have read Helen's work in a number of publications, including Empire Magazine, heard her voice on the Empire podcast, and Helen has just written a brand new book, Women vs. Hollywood, colon, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. What a title. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I was uh, all set for something quite gung-ho from the beginning, and it took a little bit of time to persuade my publisher that it wouldn't scare people. But I'm very glad that we, we had the discussions that we did. And yeah, I think this, this sums up the book. Yeah. But I was trying to cover 100 years of Hollywood history, slightly more, actually, and, and you know, make some points. And, you know, that was quite difficult. Uh, is my excuse. So that's why I told my publisher anyway and then started crying and said, please don't make me cut anything more, please. I can't. I don't know how. When you go into something like this, do you have a page count in mind? I know nothing about writing a book, but um, is that sort of something you're, you're trying to aim for? Or is it like, let's just see how many we need. Let's see we'll, what we'll happens. Sort of down. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit like that. They did give me a word count. They did uh, t- tell me it should be about 90,000 words, which is apparently the length of a book. And mine is slightly ended up a bit over that even with some editing. So anyway, thanks Amanda Keats, my editor, for letting me away with it. But yeah, it's 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 a huge topic and I was, I was determined to try and skip through all these years of history because I wanted to sort of look at why are women at a disadvantage in the film industry? Like there are fewer women directors, producers, you name it, there are fewer of them. Uh, female stars are paid less than male stars. They have shorter careers. Like, why are all of these things? And of course, a lot of these problems go way beyond Hollywood. But I wanted to really kind of focus in and look at how it acts on the film industry and how it acts on the stories that we're told and, and the way that shapes our imagination. And that meant really going back through history and looking at the various areas that have kind of had their effect on Hollywood. And there were women there in the silent era. There were women action stars. There were women who owned studios. There were women writers, directors, you name it. Lois Weber was paid more than almost all the men in town at one point in the 1910s. You know, Alice Gee was one of the first people ever to make a narrative film in 1896. There were women pioneers and they were all kind of written out of history, more or less. Like I hadn't as a journalist even heard of many of them until a few years ago. So it's it was just an attempt to kind of rebalance the scales a little bit and ignore the men's stories more or less entirely. (laughs) And... And just focus a little bit on on the particular challenges that women had to face in various eras. Is this something which you know has been weighing on your mind for for some time? And, and what what was the kickoff point for like, okay, I'm going to channel this into a book? It was really discussions with with Amanda, my editor, that kind of firmed firmed up the idea that oh maybe I could write something about this. But yeah, th- these are things that I have been talking about and writing about. You know, I was commissioned a few years ago to write something about some of the early pioneers, some uh, you know Dorothy Arzner and, and Weber and Gee and people and and I. I hadn't known about them before much before those you know so because I didn't study film I studied law and came into it late and I hadn't got that academic background although having said that even people who did have not necessarily heard these names so yeah so it was an opportunity for me to do some more reading I knew my kind of areas that I wanted to look at and areas I wanted to discuss 
And then in the course of the research, you know, other bits and pieces came up that I didn't kind of expect. And I had to kind of rejig a bit and rethink my, my emphasis in a few areas. Um, but, you know, things like like I wanted censorship to be in there because I knew that affected the career of Mae West, for example. What I didn't realize was the massive extent to which it affected the careers of women of color. Like, and it, it absolutely barred them from getting anywhere in Hollywood for the best part of half, half a century. And, you know, that kind of thing, I, I, I vaguely knew, of course, oh, there was racism in Hollywood, but I didn't understand exactly the mechanisms that sort of empowered that. And, and that was really interesting to learn and horrifying, of course. It is quite an eye-opening read, which I guess is the response you want. You know, you're oh, shining you. a light on, on on this stuff. It's a really good gateway into, um, you know, a much sort of wider conversation. You did go into this, you know, you know as with your experience as a, a film journalist though, and, and podcaster, was there something that you were really looking forward to tackling in the book? The, the idea of putting it all in one place and trying to tie it together, because I feel like there's a lot of things that instinctively feel a bit off sometimes and a bit wrong and it's hard to sometimes put it into words why you feel that you know x film is being treated unfairly and what I was trying to do really is is put that into words and put that feeling into words and so that maybe I'll give people ammunition to actually say the things that are bothering them and, and kind of be able to articulate what it is that seems unfair I mean why do we seem to give Transformers more of a pass than we give Twilight, you know, because I would genuinely say that those films are about on a par. They came out about around the same time. I feel like Twilight gets a hell of a lot more hate than Transformers gets. I'm talking about the first in each case. I'm not defending the sequels of either. And I feel like a lot of that is this idea that things aimed at men and aimed at male interests are treated as bigger and more important and, and inherently almost weightier, although that's a hard case to make in the case of Transformers, than, than things aimed at women, and especially at young women, especially at young women. And so that's something that I think people should think about and 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 try and reject because and try and examine at, at the very least, because that's not inherently the case or it shouldn't be. So, so it was stuff like that. I wanted to kind of look into this and, and think about like if everyone who chooses what goes into a festival and chooses who writes the reviews and awards the awards at the end of the season. If those are all dominated by men, does that change the kind of films we consider important? And does that change the kind of films that we treat as serious, important films and the, the, the kind of films that then get made on the back of that? And the people's careers who are boosted by those wins or those good reviews or whatever else. And I think it does. And I think that all of this ecosystem matters and we have to start examining it ourselves a little bit this is a huge topic right now you know was it quite did it feel quite timely uh, doing research for this book considering what's you know i don't know if changes actually happened but there's a lot of people talking about it in film land right now yeah well i think the talk is a change in itself i do think that's something we haven't been doing enough for years and i think you know since me too and, and just since social media i think people have gotten in the habit of being able to speak out and film companies have become aware that it might be embarrassing if they get this stuff wrong. You know, it, they, I think they've begun to realise that there is a reputational risk if they act the way they always have. But in, in truth, the, the fact that we're in this moment that we're in made it very difficult to come to any kind of conclusion because we're in the thick of it and we're in the discussion and the numbers do seem to be shifting. 
But the numbers have shifted before and then shifted back because people took their eye off the ball or because they weren't able to sustain the amount of pressure needed um, or because they were simply unlucky at the box office or whatever else. So there is a real risk that, you know, that happens again, that this all kind of deflates and goes away. And that will only not happen if people kind of keep paying attention to it. So I am optimistic and I do think we are changing things. The fact that we had, I mean, pre-COVID, there were meant to be five blockbusters in 2020 directed by women, three of them, I think, by women of colour. That's unbelievable. That's never happened before. That That is a landmark thing. And that kind of thing does seem to be going forward. But of course, the danger is post-COVID, there's going to be this economic downturn. We all know it's coming. Does that mean they all retreat to the quote-unquote safe hands of the white men who have been established for 20 years or more? Because I don't think that's even the safe result. I don't even think that will guarantee them you know, the results that they think it will. Um, but, but it is a worry because it's happened again before. So we just need to kind of keep the pressure on and, and hope that we can keep the momentum going but yeah it made it very difficult to write a conclusion because it's not concluded you know so it's it's sort of like oh <laughs> yeah i was surprised when i got to the final chapter and it was just a shrug emoji <laughs> <laughs> oh my god see that would have helped me with the word count Im- immensely so you know that would have been great i thought the um final chapter actually was it was quite hopeful although you've, you're very clear you know this isn't the end of this story um mm. but it, it sort of I mean, it leaves you on a bit of a positive note which was really Good. nice because because you could easily have not done that <laughs> <laughs> no I, I i thought that was important because i don't actually feel uh hopeless and i don't feel that we are i don't think it's impossible and i do think things are changing and i do think i think people just didn't think about it because they didn't have to and i i, I don't think this that's malicious i mean there have been cases of malice and some of the stories you know some of the women written out of history in the silent era, that was definitely a kind of malice and professional jealousy. And some of them, it was just the fact that everybody was trying to forget the silent era and, and were, was a bit embarrassed by it looking back. And they just didn't think it was important to preserve anything. So, of course, you know, the women who'd been there were kind of lost as part of that. So it's not always malice that leads to women being kind of overlooked. I think it's sometimes just this sense of, well, this is the way things are done. Oh, well, we know him. He's good. We'll just call him. And not really trying any harder than that. Um, and I totally understand that impulse. We all have that. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah, yeah, I like him. Yeah, let's just do that without necessarily looking beyond our our social group or whatever it is. But, you know, what's happening now is people are beginning to see that that matters and that's not enough and that they have to do a little bit more. And they're beginning to do that. And I think it is all headed in the right direction. We just have to make sure we don't give up. For this podcast, I gave you some homework, Mm. which I felt very bad about because you've been doing so much research already for this book, (laughs) but hopefully some fun homework. How did you how did you pick just one 90 minute film to discuss and submit to our film festival? It was genuinely very difficult. A lot of my favourites had already been claimed. So that, I guess, made it easier. And I look forward to seeing those at the festival, of course. This is one of my all time favourites. This is a film that I first saw as a tiny child. I don't know if I saw it in the cinema, but I also had the tie-in picture book and that was one of those ones I went through a phase of it it being read to me obsessively every every night before bed kind of a book to the point where I could basically recite it or kind of recite it so perhaps I can soften this blow became Papsabo um and that still gets thrown at me by my family um occasionally so yeah thanks guys um so yeah so I have a very long history with this film Um, but what amazed me when I watched it in adulthood is that it is an astonishing movie 
And uh, and that's what's kind of stuck with me ever since. So I, I go back to it every few years and just sort of have another look because I think it is the most beautiful of its uh, stable, shall we say, of its kind. Um, and certainly one of the most innovative. Please reveal what film you've picked. I have chosen Disney's 1959 Sleeping Beauty. The legend that transcends time begins with the glorious celebration of Princess Aurora's birth, a joyful event that makes Maleficent, one of the most spectacular villains ever, extremely jealous. As the years pass and the princess grows into a beautiful and gracious young woman, three good fairies do their best to protect Aurora. But, alas, on her 16th birthday, Aurora pricks her finger on an enchanted spinning wheel and falls under Maleficent's spell into a deep sleep. Only the brave Prince Philip can defeat a fire-breathing dragon, yes. spoilers, and battle his way <laughs> to the tower to awaken the princess from her dreams. As you mentioned, um, Sleeping Beauty is from uh, Walt Disney Animations. It's the 16th animated feature and based on the classic folktale of the same name, which I think is a very, very old folktale, but sort of more formalised by people like the Brothers Grimm and Tchaikovsky uh, with his ballet. Um, and a lot of those elements actually make it into the film, uh, released in 1959 and 75 minutes long. Oof, 75, you know, tight in and out, boom, done. Yeah, doesn't hang about. I, I just... I just think it's stunning. So first of all, the way it looks, right? So this, a lot of this is down to a guy called Avond Earl, who I think is credited as something like color consultant. Um, but he was this artist, this graphic artist, and he makes the film look like nothing else. He apparently caused massive delays during production and was, a, was an absolute pain to work with. But the colors in this film are like no other Disney film. They've got these pops of like acid oranges and teals and bright bright yellows and this this lime like ghastly lime green that goes through the whole film that is just unlike anything else but also he did the, a lot of the background so you get these kind of squared off trees and this really weird surreal geometric landscape and lots of kind of tall crags coming out of nowhere going to nowhere just just adding some visual interest I just think it looks amazing. And even the Disney characters in front of that. Now, this isn't all Avond Earl, of course. This this came from the studio. But they've drawn inspiration from medieval arts, uh, from things like the Très Richard Heure du Duc de Berry, or however you pronounce it. But the, um, the, the perspective is slightly off. And that's not something that Disney got wrong because they got it wrong. That's something they got wrong on purpose to mimic those incredible illustrated books from the medieval period. And it just it just gives it a look like no other Disney movie. I, I just adore it. You're right, absolutely. I think it's so stunning. I really didn't appreciate how good it looked when I was a child because, you know, I was just looking for the funny characters. <laughs> I thought the fairies were great. Yeah, as I've, as I've grown up, every time I revisit this film, I'm blown away by, and I'm someone who likes to rewatch a Disney film, but this one really stands out in terms of the, the scale of the production. Yeah. It is only 75 minutes long. It feels like a huge epic, and I think you're right, that's because of the art direction and especially those stunning backgrounds. Definitely. And it, and it is, there is sometimes a tension between the cutesier, more Disney characters, you know, the forest animals, and then this background, but I, I don't know, e even then it somehow works. The other thing I noticed the other night, actually, it's the first time in a couple of years I've watched it, and the, so instead of always having a black outline to the characters, they sometimes go with a, you know, a, a light blue or something to stand out more against the dark backgrounds. And it's almost kind of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse kind of flair for colours and, and, you know, messing with the format a little bit and just 
daring that little bit more than usual. So I'm willing to overlook the fact that Aurora is not the most fully developed Disney character, that the love story is not the most even-handed and, you know, well-cooked. I think if you're watching a Disney film, you kind of have to just buy that love at first sight is a thing and just kind of go with that. So I know that people are like, oh my God, you know, he kisses her and he's only known her today and they get married and what the hell, this is all messed up. And yes, it's totally messed up, but it's, yeah, it's true love. It's fine. and Don't worry about it. You know, I think that that's where the suspension of disbelief comes in in the Disney movie. It's not the animals singing along with people. It's it's that. On, on that similar note, at the very beginning, at Aurora's birth, when the very young, who we later find out, is the prince, it's prince. Uh, <laughs> prince Philip? Uh, yeah, and, and I think the line is sort of like you know uh, he goes over to the baby in her crib, and someone says you know meet your future wife, and <laughs> he like, just Whoa. makes a face at her. <laughs> but it's what's adorable is like that's a very believable you know three or four year old face of like Ew. yeah, <laughs> and and that's to his credit. I think that was a nice little piece of characterization. I also think that the two kings are great. I, I think the queen is apparently she does have a name. She's apparently Queen Leia or Lee, but it's never said on screen and she doesn't have much to do. So that's kind of a shame. But but the, but the kings are well-developed. Uh, the fairies are a lot of fun. What do you think of the dress? Well, it, it's, a, it, it's not exactly the way it is in the book, is it? Oh, I improved it. But perhaps if I added a few more ruffles, uh, what do you think? Um, I think so. What do you think, Mary Weather? I think we've had enough of this nonsense. To the point about the characters sometimes feeling at odds with the the backgrounds, I think that was, in terms of the real-life production of it, that seemed to be a bone of contention for the whole production. Even though his fingerprints are so over this, Avon Durrell's, he actually left before the film was complete. And, mm. and I think that was just, you know, a, a whole team at Loggerheads and yeah. something needed to change. But even with him him going, he, he left such an impression on the art direction. I do think a lot of the characters look totally unlike anything in a Disney film, which is great. I sort of love that this is a, a point of change. But I do think the fairy godmothers, they're your 100% classic Disney style. Yeah. And I think it really suits those characters. They were really the standout for me on this rewatch. They're good. I mean, look, it's Maleficent all the way. I'm not even going to pretend otherwise <laughs> but, uh, for me. But um, but no, they are really good. And I think they're... Um, their bits of comic business are genu genuinely funny. The scene where they're trying to sew uh, uh, Aurora her dress for her birthday and make her birthday cake without using magic is a genuine comic masterclass. It's a beautifully put together scene. The fact that um, uh, Fauna, no, Flora, cuts a hole out of her length of material for the bottom of the skirt is one of the funniest things. And it's just this tiny little moment, but it's a that's a brilliantly stupid thing to do. And it just shows how little common sense they have. I, like that kind of thing alone is, is worth watching this film for. The forest animals who are also 100% nailed on classic Disney, also really cute. So they don't just sit around listening to Aurora prattle on about her dreams. They also literally, you know, have that beautiful little bit where they steal all of Prince Philip's, um, you know, cloak and hat and boots and dance with her around the forest. It's, it's beautifully done. All those little bits of business around the edges are super, super charming. Because it's going for a more, you know, quote-unquote realistic style in, in, in some <laughs> respects, but it sells it so well, you totally believe that the animals, you know, will have some sort of sentience and will want to help Aurora. And also, like, the um, it's that great trope of uh, the horse 
Prince Philip's horse. Disney animated horses usually steal the show for me, and I think this yeah. one is no exception. He's he's definitely a precursor to was it Goliath in Tangled, um, and even Sven in, in yes. Frozen. I think is very much part of the same family. Uh, yeah, the, the Disney horse is is an important character in his own right, and uh, and this one I think this one is the sort of granddaddy of them all because I don't remember any of the previous Disney horses being quite as opinionated uh, as this one. So yeah, full marks there. Prince Philip apparently is actually named after Prince Philip, as in the Duke of Edinburgh, because he and uh, and the Queen were, I think, were they engaged or getting married when this was in production? No, they were already married, weren't they, when this was in production? And it just seemed impossible for it to be any other name, apparently. So they were just like, well, obviously it has to be Philip. So yeah. Wow. I wonder if he grew up to be like the real Prince Philip. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe we'll find out in the sequel. (laughs) Exactly. I wouldn't dare comment. So then we come to Maleficent. So I wrote a thing for Empire years back, basically sort of cheerleading the fact that Maleficent had never been redeemed. You know, all the other baddies on the AFI AFI greatest movie villains of all time list, I think something like eight out of the top ten have now had slightly sympathetic backstories. You know, and and I was like, haha, but not Maleficent, whose name literally means evildoer. And then, of course, along came Angelina Jolie. And, you know, it was a film I was very excited about on paper, but I think it was a little bit overcooked. And it is overcooked. It has to be overcooked because Maleficent is a baddie. And when you try to redeem Maleficent, you have to tie yourself in these insane narrative knots to make sense of the fact that she literally promises to kill a baby. And there's no real way to easily redeem that, you know, so, but here she's so elegant. She's so kind of creepy and so sure of herself. The only mistake she really makes is, well, a couple of them, I suppose. But the major one she makes is hiring incompetent help. So they spend 16 years looking for a baby when, of course, they should have been looking by that point for a teenager. So, uh, but apart from that, she's just so self-possessed. She's so cool. Um, Eleanor Audley's voice amazing. I don't know what it is about her. I mean, she's incredible as Lady Tremaine as well in Cinderella, but something about that level of richness of voice, certainly, but also something about it that makes you want to punch her a little bit. Not in a bad way. I don't condone violence, but also, you know, it's something about the sheer level of sneer in the voice and superiority is is astonishing. I think she's so driven by that one goal to take out aurora (laughs) for 16 years and and you really do feel that in the performance like she is so full of hate i think the design is so good as well like like, this is such an expressive film and to have a villain which basically has two pointy horns green skin all of her minions are in a similar color scheme to her her castle looks or is is falling apart sort of from the base it looks like it's rotting at the roots uh, which i really love it actually looks quite precarious when you Mm. you finally get there with prince philip and it's um it's the same artist who drew Corella de Vil later. That was the, the mm. next film after this. Mark Davies. What an eye for villains. It's it's funny the way that uh, Disney Animation used to do a lot more of that. They they still do some, but they would have particular animators take a particular kind of person. Like Glenn Keane, I think here for a long time was was one of the ones who did the hero or the heroine character. Um, Eric Goldberg did Genie, and he did a lot of those kind of squash and stretchy kind of comical characters for a long time um, in the more recent era. But the nine old men of Disney animation all had their own sort of strengths and, and particular favorites. And when they really hit with a character like this, they just, it's such a pleasure to watch. They just take ownership of this weird creation and go to town. I just love it. But I mean, Maleficent, yeah, the design 
is perfect. It's just perfect villainous design. All of her minions, they're very similar to the kind of the demons in Fantasia, in Night on Bold Mountain. And there is a Night on Bold Mountain feel about her entire just place, you know, with the clouds swirling overhead. And as you say, the castle falling apart and all these spikes all round it. Forbidding doesn't begin to cover that castle. Like that is incredible place. But, and then, then she turns into a, a freaking dragon, like amazing. I really love about her design is she's she's really tall and intimidating and all of her minions are about half her size, which is great. You know, they're, they're, they're supposed to be quite menacing, but they're still not quite as big or as menacing as Maleficent. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that dragon reveal and all of this happened so quickly. This is a 75 minute long film, but the story is told so well that I think that maybe it's one or two minutes of sort of dragon animation towards the end really leaves a huge lasting impression with you. Yeah, it's really quick. It's really, really brief. And and you kind of remember her doing more than she does. I think in my head, I actually had her mix up a little bit with Ursula, the sea witch, who's obviously a very different body type and everything else. But she, I was convinced for years that Maleficent also got to say so much for true love. And I don't think she actually does. But she absolutely would. Like she and Ursula would totally hang, and and you know that would be their that would be their kind of salut uh, when they clinked glasses, you know. So she just feels so so deliciously evil. I think she's amazing. Oh. And it's all because she wasn't invited to a party. Yeah, that's I mean, what I love. <laughs> that's magnificently petty. I've just realised, and this genuinely wasn't planned. I am actually drinking from my Maleficent mug. As I say, as I do this, it says on the back, uh, I, oh, look, wow. I look good in black. It matches my mood. So there you go. Hey guys, this is Kobe here from Flix Watcher Podcast. And I'm Helen, also from Flix Watcher Podcast. We are another podcast in the strip media family and we review films on Netflix. Ever struggle to find a film to watch on the Netflix? Well, we're the podcast for you and we have guests from other podcasts, big and small, and they're the ones that actually choose the films that we rate and talk about in our episodes. Like the sound of this? Find us by searching FlixWatcher, F-L-I-X Watcher, and make sure you subscribe. And if you want more information about any of the other podcasts in the Strip Media family, just visit www.strips.media to find out more. To go with this really epic art style, I think the music is so well judged for this. This is not a, a soundscape like we've really heard in a Disney film before. There are, well, there is a song which is used uh, a few times, which is, is perfect. It's a little bit more gothic. It's a little bit more operatic. And a lot of the core themes come from the Tchaikovsky musical, which is a really nice way to acknowledge that Sleeping Beauty is such an old folktale. It's had so many different interpretations. It brings in another kind of element of its mythology. Yeah, I think this is part of the, you know, the Disney... The Disney kind of, I want to call it restlessness almost, but just like intellectual curiosity and the fact that he was always trying to push the boundaries a bit. And I think also always trying to get animation taken more seriously. He, he knew he was making films for kids and he was totally fine with that. But he also wanted to sort of go, look, this is important and this is an art form. And he was a real champion of the art form and really pushed it forward. So this, you know, like many Disney films, this was pushing new technology and new techniques in animation. But and again, like many Disney films, it took elements from classical music because he thought that was important and that was a way of signaling that this is not just a silly throwaway thing for kids. This is something you should engage with as art. Um, and of course, Fantasia is the you know classic example of that. But I, I do think that you're right, that the, the use of Tchaikovsky here is, is very deliberate and is 
again leaning into this idea that you know we, you should take this seriously this is this is art like a lot of um disney films there's a lot of behind the scenes uh shenanigans and and one of the big things with this is there were lots of songs written which didn't end up being used and the original composers and songwriters jack lawrence and sammy fain had their work kind of thrown out but they did keep that one song which is perfect it's become a disney staple once mm-hmm. upon a dream and i think it, it works it doesn't go against the style uh, you know, for whatever reason that song it moves the story along it isn't sort of a like a, a weird sort of detour it's it's of a similar tone and it's it's basically aurora's big character moment is that song because she isn't a hugely fleshed out character in this but the song does a lot of heavy lifting for her yeah every disney princess has an i have i have a dream song and she literally has an i have a dream song like it's a literal dream that she has apparently so um i thought that was well done i mean the thing is she doesn't have a lot of character, and that is 100% true. They do well with tiny moments with her, I think. So the, the sort of when she's leaving the cottage at the beginning and, and the fairy godmothers are trying to sort of push her out, like she knows they're up to something and she's sort of rather sweetly kind of laughing at them and kind of going along with it. She's like not fooled for a second. So she does have a little bit of sharpness to her there. And then at the end, when Philip is sort of going, you know, can I see you tomorrow? She's like, oh, no, no, not tomorrow. No, tonight. You know, so there's not she knows what she wants and she's kind of going for it there. She's not being too coy or too shy. So I think she is a little bit she gets a little bit of a bad rap. I'm not saying she's one of the great Disney characters and I certainly wouldn't put her up next to even Ariel, never mind Moana. But she is not completely I think Cinderella is more bland. I think, you know, I think Aurora has more to her than Cinderella does. So I think, yeah, I think we give her a little bit of a hard time sometimes. That's all. I think it's because of how the story is told. Like I, I sort of feel like the the fairy godmothers have more of a kind of a story arc mm-hmm. uh, in this than, than Aurora because she's kind of the the the, the MacGuffin um, for she, a lot yeah, of the film. Yeah, she is. Yeah, um, but. But when she, you're right though. When and I think it's like it's it's to do with the the way she's drawn. I think that adds a lot of gravitas to her. I also think the um because this is of, a, of an era where Disney would film live action footage and would use it for reference. And I think the ballet performer uh, that they film as a model for Aurora is 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 a big part of it. And also Mary Costa's voice is so good. And I think when she fir- when you first meet a 16 year old aurora the, the fairy godmothers are trying quite badly to hide her birthday celebrations she just feels so world wise yeah. she knows exactly what's going on and it's all through the voice performance i think of mary costa in that scene yeah i think you're right but i think you're you're also right about the physicality that she does have that sense of almost being a ballet dancer like she's got the perfect posture the sort of shoulders back and you know head straight up and and just walking really lightly along and and that does give her a sense of maybe not quite authority, but certainly certainty in herself. Like she doesn't seem unsure or timid. Um, And I think a lot of it comes from that carriage and as you say, the voice as well. Um, So yeah, look, again, not, not gonna go over the top, but she isn't quite that bad. Prince Philip is, you know, just a kind of bland hero as well, you know, and we don't see him given quite as hard a time. Although he's a bland hero who, who's also quite brave, so fair play to him. And he has a great horse, so he must be, he must be decent. Surely that horse wouldn't stick around otherwise. The princess shall indeed grow in grace and beauty, beloved by all who know her. But before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, she shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. Oh no! <laughs> 
that creature. Stand back, you fools. Do you have a, a favourite scene? The dragon. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm. A, I like a dragon at the best of times. I'm a. You know, I. I get accused. What was it? I think it was Ollie Richards at Empire who came up with the phrase "books with dragons on." He used to <laughs> dismissively talk about anything James or I read as uh, it's just books with dragons on. But I do read a lot of books with dragons on and indeed in. Um. So I and I used to have like little you know, dragon mobiles and statues and stuff around my my bedroom as a kid. So uh. So yeah, I just love the dragon. I think it's great. But I just think that there's so much kind of menace in that scene and it is brief. Um, but when he's jumping into the sort of thorns and with no regard for his horse's safety, I might add, it, it's it's really exciting. The music is building. The colours are just so dark and menacing. It, it just looks amazing. So, yeah, the dragon. It suits that sort of you know, being the climax of the film. It's the climax of the colours being at their most vivid. That sickly green uh, gas uh, around the, is, is, is incredible. And it's such a, a neat evolution. Like the dragon keeps that Maleficent look, even though she's totally changed into something that's, you know, 10 times her actual size. <laughs> um, it's such a neat progression. Again, it's just, you know, it highlights the skill of the artist's uh, working uh, on this for it to retain the Maleficent characteristics. Yeah. How about you? What's your favourite bit? I've, I've totally forgotten about this, um, which is weird because it's quite a major part of the film. I totally forgot the um, the constant battle about the colour of Aurora's dress, whether it should dress. be blue or pink. <laughs> and I, I, I love that. It, it says so much about the the fairy godmother characters they're also proud um, and they're also invested in aurora they want to have their stamp um, on mm -hmm. even the color of her dress and i think the, the climax of that at the ball where they're constantly using their magic wands to change it from blue <laughs> to pink which makes for a really spectacular finale actually you know mm -hmm. the, the, it's changing before our eyes um it's such a neat uh, i just think that's such a neat thing good character moments for the fairy godmothers um really great for the art team to be able to show off um the skill that's required to do something like that yeah and also, it's a nice little thing for Aurora and Philip, who don't even notice. Yeah, I, I really there's, love there's that. Not even, there's not even a throwaway double take. There's nothing. They're just too busy in love with each other. Like a lot of the Disney films now, you know, these are bona fide classics. You know, you, you watch them on repeat as a child and you, you sort of go through them all. And, and we grow up with a knowledge of them. But I was quite intrigued to read uh, about how it was received at the time. And even though it was a huge success... It was like the second highest grossing film after Ben-Hur. It lost money because it was such an expensive production. Yeah, th this this is the thing about classic Disney is there was a sort of boom and bust cycle where they would have a success or even a couple of successes in a row and then have a major, very expensive flop. And, and that's the danger of always innovating, which I, I think they always did, that they would invest in these new technologies and these new techniques and it would take so much longer and be more expensive as a result. Um, so even when things, I mean, even something like Fantasia really early on, you know, cost so much to make that it didn't make its money back, even though it was sort of successful. So you see this a lot and I think it, it's part of it's part of Disney's genius that he was able to kind of shrug it off and keep moving. But I think it's also part of his genius that he saw these all as long-term investments. And I think that is a major part of what Disney is still doing now. So until obviously Disney Plus at the moment, you know, they have us all hooked and uh, are, are injecting it straight into our veins. But what they would do for most of the century is they would re-release these films about every, I think, seven years. So they would have a new generation of small children who would be there to watch it. So I remember 
going to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in the cinema. And, you know, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And it's because it was still released, even at that point, every few years. And you could go back and see it on the big screen. And that model is what has kept Disney alive. And that's what allowed them to soak up all of these other films that did make a loss because they could just re-release Dumbo or re-release Pinocchio or something every so often and keep it kind of going that way feels maybe quite cynical but it's how you know art needs to work there's always that commercial element disney was probably the master of this uh, especially when you look at the merchandising and the theme parks the oh, fact exactly. that sleeping beauty's castle is the center of a lot of theme parks is because it was disneyland was being made at the same time as this film and it was a big marketing opportunity but it's become its own cultural icon and you would never move sleeping beauty's castle now oh, from no. the disney theme no, parks no. Absolutely. It's part of the mythos now. Um, I, I should say, just on, kind of tying this back in with the book, uh, it is worth noting that animation is one of the areas that I, I looked at a little bit. And I, I honestly, somebody should be writing an entire book about women in animation. I, I don't think it's me because I don't think I have the expertise. But Disney was sexist and racist um, at the beginning um, in terms of who they would hire for their studios. And women were literally told that women couldn't animate because they had no sense of timing. And apparently female employees of Disney animation who were allowed to be maybe colorists, you know, they famously put the rouge on Snow White's cheeks. They were told that they would be fired if they set foot in the animation building unless they were models. So those were the only women allowed in the animation building, which meant that they couldn't go to the canteen there, which was apparently better than the one they had, for example. But yeah, it was it was it's one of these areas, you know, Sometimes if you ask why there aren't more female cinematographers, right, they'll they'll tell you, well, that's because you come up through the camera department. There's a lot of heavy lifting. That, they say, is the reason there aren't more women in cinematography. That that reason or excuse is becoming more and more tenuous, but it's it's there. With animation, there is no heavy lifting, let's be honest, or certainly no significant amount of heavy lifting. It is literally just sexism that has created this this thing. So... I think Disney did remarkably well despite that. and I, But I think they have benefited in recent years from having more female voices around the studio. You know, not least because if you look at somebody like Flynn Rider uh, in comparison to Prince Philip, that's because they actually asked women what is attractive and then tried to do that in their character work. So, you know, there's there's been a real step forward in recent years, but it's still a male-dominated industry, and it shouldn't be if you look at who's going into the animation schools. So uh, it's it's a strange uh, it's a strange wrinkle in you know in the Disney mythos because they do make so many films for women and about you know princesses and everything else. And yet they, they locked women out of making them. I'd love to read more about the history, but you're right. You know, all of the names we've quoted, you know, here are all male names. And mm -hmm. if you look at behind the scenes photos of, you know, the classic Disney animation studios, it's typical, you know, guys smoking cigars, uh, guys in shirts over benches. But there's not a picture of a woman to be seen unless it's one of the, the models used. Yeah, this is it. And it's, it's, a, it's a really kind of sad thing because, again, you just kind of wonder what all those lost geniuses would have done you know and and some of them did work elsewhere and did do incredibly good work elsewhere uh, somebody like selby kelly um and her husband she she went for a job on snow white um ended up not being allowed to be an animator of course but did work on the, on the film and um and it was years later when she actually was able to go off and animate stuff for herself which she did very well so you know it's uh it's depressing but that's that's one of the things i've tried to just to bring back the book for a second but that is one of the things i tried to look at is the the stories that aren't there and that aren't told because they weren't allowed in the door in the first place. Uh, so it is just worth mentioning that in terms of Disney that, you know, I love them. I love these films, 
but they did leave out half of their potential talent um, throughout the studio's history up until obviously the modern era. I was surprised by this film passing the Bechdel test. <laughs> Not that it's a perfect uh, thing to do, but it's always a no, fun no, thing but... to think about whilst watching, especially an older film. And a lot of Disney films uh, before this, especially the ones we've covered on the podcast, definitely do not. Uh, <laughs> but um, but this one, because oh, of the fairy godmother characters yeah. um, and their relationship with Aurora, um, you know, it really it really does. So that was you know, that's that's one plus point. Absolutely. Um, and and um, uh, Maleficent talking to them as well. So you've got, you know, frequently four women on screen talking about nothing to do with men. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pleasant that way. It's pretty good. There we have it. We have Sleeping Beauty in our 90 minute or less film festival. We're building a little bit of a Disney sidebar now, actually. We've already got Dumbo in <laughs> and we've got the film after this, 101 Dalmatians. Uh, so Brilliant. two of the best villains are, are in the lineup already. As part of your commitment as a curator of this festival, I, I can give you a blank check, um, but I really want Fantastic. your I want your personal take on what is the optimum venue uh, to watch Sleeping Beauty in. Well, so the obvious, the obvious answer is Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disney. I don't really mind which one. I like the Disneyland one. And there is rumoured to be a sort of private apartment in Sleeping Beauty's castle at all the various Disneys that you can rent for some astronomical sum if you book 16 years in advance. So so obviously that would be choice number one. If I were being like 10% less obvious, or maybe even 5% less obvious, I would suggest Noschwanstein in Germany. Um, which was one of the models for Sleeping Beauty's castle and is that ridiculously romantic looking. It's a sort of, you know, castle halfway up an alp, basically incredible numbers of turrets. I think it was built by somebody called King Ludwig the Mad, if I remember correctly. I went there once in the winter when it was under about a foot of snow and it's one of the most stunning places I've ever been on earth. So that would be pretty good. I don't know if we can arrange to have it in winter in snow um, and have like heated blankets or something for everybody, but that would be pretty cool to uh, to watch it in Noschwanstein. I think so. We can make it a big event. We could have, you know, um, warm cider, mulled wine, Amazing. set up a nice rink. Um, yeah, we'd have all those people dressed, palace. you know, in, in, this, in the style of the film, in the sort of medieval dress, they'd be going around bringing us Glühwein and Lebkuchen and stuff like that. It'd be amazing. If you could invite a special guest to maybe discuss the film or introduce the film, who would you pick? Well, one of the people I talked to for my book is an animation expert called Nancy Beeman. Um, so she worked on films like Hercules and uh, I think uh, Titan AE and stuff like that. But she was also part of the CalArts class with, you know, John Lasseter and Ron Musker and, and so on. She, she kind of knows a lot about animation and that's really underselling it and I think I, I like I said I spoke to her she was fascinating I could easily have gone another couple of hours so it'd be really really fun to to really go deep on this film with her you know the joy of this film being 75 minutes long is we have room for a long discussion afterwards <laughs> and I'd love to pick someone's brain like that I mean that's assuming I'm not allowed any dead people because obviously otherwise I'd have a panel discussion of the nine old men and just get really into Disney animation. Oh, that sounds amazing. Okay, well, that's our first uh, screening in a German castle and uh, and our third Disney film, which is uh, is really fun. The joy of Disney films is I think most of them are under 90 minutes. So if we do this podcast long enough, we might just have them all at some point. Helen, where can people find out what you're up to on the interwebs? Well, I am on Helen L. O'Hara uh, on Twitter and I am... Um... I'm on the Empire podcast every week and Empire Spoiler Podcasts in addition to that on our special spoiler channel. 
And then, of course, the book, uh, Women vs. Hollywood, is out on February 18th and uh, will be in all good and evil bookshops, I hope, and on audiobooks, if that's your thing as well. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully people enjoy it and, you know, drop me a line and let me know. Thank you so much, Helen, uh, for joining us today. Thank you for contributing Sleeping Beauty and thank you so much for your book, uh, Women vs. Hollywood. I will be downloading the audiobook on day one, which is now, as this podcast is released. (laughs) Thank you, Helen. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcast of choice you can also listen on our website 90minfilmfest.com that's 90minfilmfest.com you can contact us there or on twitter and instagram at 90minfilmfest the podcast is produced by louise owen and me sam clements the show is edited by louise owen with sound mixing and additional editing by luke smith our music is by martin ostwick and our artwork is by sam gilby we are a proud member of the stripped media network and we'll be back in a couple of weeks We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.